Okay, friends, if you got a Bible, we are in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are in a series called The Commands of His Love, which is a series on the Ten Commandments. And St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, summed up what we said last week well. Augustine said, It is not that we keep His commandments first and then He loves us, but that He loves us and then we keep His commandments. This is that grace which is revealed to the humble, but hidden from the proud. So give your attention as we look to the first commandment to Kendall as he reads from God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord, Exodus 21-3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll take this very important passage in the Old Testament. And that by it, you'll change us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a campus minister not many years ago, it was a value of of, um, our ministry that all of the interns who worked with Mana Christian Fellowship at Princeton knew how to serve other people. And so I'd met a lady named Regina at the store one day who needed some help at her house with just some housework, she says. And so we grab the three interns and we say, hey, let's all pile in the car. We're going to go help this lady named Regina. She seemed, from all appearances, to be a completely normal lady until you saw what she lived with. When we walked into her house together, there were hundreds and hundreds of old magazines from the 1980s. And there were what seemed to be thousands of Kleenexes that were used just laying around her house. And Kleenex boxes. And old cartons. And food. It was unbelievable. Especially for the intern that was from Long Island. Like, she had, her entire house was full of old trash. She was a pack rat. In fact, her kitchen was so overwhelmed with trash that she had stopped eating out. She had the good sense to know that she really couldn't facilitate that kitchen at all. So she had started, she'd stopped cooking at home and she'd started eating out. So there were McDonald's and stale french fries and old Wendy's bags. It was disgusting. And I said to her, Regina, how did you get to this point? And she said with a sense of pride, one day at a time. And the sad thing about Regina's situation was that the trash in her house, the mess in her house, wasn't her biggest problem. Because beneath the mess and beneath the 1989 Esquire magazines and all of the junk, there were thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of carpenter ants and cockroaches and rats eating away the baseboards of her home. Exodus chapter 20 is about the rats beneath the mess of your life. Every single one of us read these Ten Commandments. And we know we can't keep them. But the first commandment speaks of the much deeper problem in our life than just the mess that's at the surface. It speaks of what the Bible calls idolatry. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that we gave up worshiping the Creator and we worshiped and served the created things, Romans 1.24. And the Bible assumes that every person in this room and me has what we would say are idols of the heart. Those are things that we put before the Lord. Those are bank account balances. Those are homes. Those are the visions we have for the good life. And it's a very subtle network of systems and of self-propagating issues that allow us to say, these are the real things that we serve. And the Bible makes no mistake about it. From Genesis to Revelation, it says that beneath these peccadilloes, these sins, these one-off situations that you see on the board behind me, for example, are much deeper issues. They are beneath the surface. And those are the things that actually control us, that own us, and they beg of us to serve them. So, I'm not going to spend this morning convincing you that you have idols. I'm just going to make this assumption, and I hope you'll allow me to do this, that you have them. And I do too. Instead, we're going to spend time diagnosing what those idols of our hearts are and then looking to see what we do about it. Is that okay with you? So let's dive in together. How do you know what the idols of your heart are? We assume that we have them. The Bible assumes that we have them. The first commandment is given to the people of God. It's the very first time. Think about this. Since Genesis chapter 3. It's the very first time. All of God's people have been together in the one place. And here they are. At Mount Sinai. And God gives them ten commandments. To summarize what he wants for his people. And the first one is what? You shall have no other gods before me. He wants us to get beneath the mess. And to see the rats. He wants you to recognize that in every one of our hearts are idols. So how do you diagnose them? First, your imagination. Archbishop William Temple one time said that your religion is what you do in your solitude. Your religion is what you do when you're alone. Think about what you consider at stoplights. What do you think about? What is it when you have a perfectly good day to do absolutely nothing? What is it that you run to? Your imagination is where it starts, doesn't it? Because your imagination is the most powerful tool that the Lord has perhaps given you. It can take you anywhere you want to go in an instant. And yet it's through your imagination that the Lord reveals the idols of your heart. Let me give you an example. What Students, kids, when I was in junior high... There was, there was a lady whose name was Wanda Webb Holloway. She became a big deal in Oklahoma and Texas. She was from Channel View, Texas. Because Wanda Webb Holloway had a daughter whose name was Shanna. And Wanda, when she was growing up, her daddy would never let her be a cheerleader. And so do you know what Wanda Webb Holloway grew up thinking about? She imagined her daughter being a cheerleader. She couldn't wait for her young daughter, her 14-year-old daughter, to become a cheerleader at Johnson Junior High. And so the day of tryouts come for young Shanna, and Wanda had spent a lot of money trying to get Shanna ready. She bought her pom-poms when she was five, and the day of tryouts come, and Shanna does the best that she could. And you know what happened? A little girl named Amber Heath beat her out 
to be the eighth cheerleader on the Johnson Junior High cheerleading squad. But because Wanda's imagination had for years gone to this dream of having a daughter who was a junior high, a, a junior high cheerleader, okay? Can we just say it for what it is? A junior high cheerleader. She decided that her good plan would be to go find Amber Heath's mother and give her most expensive diamond earrings to a man in town and ask him to kill her mom. Do you remember the story? In the early 90s, she was called the pom-pom moth. Shannon really didn't even want to be a cheerleader. She didn't really care. But somewhere along the line for Shannon's mother, cheerleading and being a mom became more than just being cheerleading and being a mom, didn't it? It became an idol of her heart. What do you think about it? Stop lights. Your religion is what you do in solitude. What do you fear? What must you have in order for you to say that my life is successful? What must you maintain in order for you to be pleased with yourself? That is getting to the root of the idol of your heart, your imagination. Second, your investments. Now, we all have time and money to spend. And because it takes money to live and to provide for your family, listen, we all deal with this temptation. And it's very, very palpable in the suburbs. It's very palpable. We see it all the time. There's a lot of pressure to live in certain subdivisions or to have a certain lifestyle or whatever. It's a temptation that is not foreign to anybody in this room. And where you invest your time and your money oftentimes will tell you where the idol of your heart lies. You've heard the saying, and I've mentioned this before, so forgive me for saying it twice in several months. You've heard the saying that money can't buy happiness. But you know that that's actually being called into question by Ivy League sociologists right now. Michael Norton gave a TED Talk. He's a Princeton sociologist who has done scientific data and experiments to show that when people spend their money the right way, it actually does buy them happiness. But the trick of the experiment is that you can't spend that money on your own material goods. You can't spend it on yourself. You have to give the money away. Straight up. Give it away to somebody else. Provide for somebody else. No matter if you're five years old or you're 95. There's a multi-generational study. Those who had the ability to give things away, and they did, were happier. It's interesting, isn't it? exact same thing the scripture has been teaching us since the Lord gave his commands to Israel to tithe. Now this isn't about tithing. I just mentioned that as an example. To say that where you spend your money oftentimes will be a plumb line to where your heart is. The amount of money in your bank account or just numbers on a screen or numbers on a page. They are completely powerless they are just black scribbles on a page. But you give them authority that they do not in themselves have. You channel value to them. And if you go further than just channeling value, you channel identities to those numbers. And you begin to feel good about yourself when the market is up, or when your bank account is up, or when you get a bonus. And you begin to feel less about yourself when the numbers are down. Listen, how do you serve money? 
You do not serve money by becoming a slave to money. You serve money by being a steward of what God has given you. And you recognize money for what it is. Money is not power. Money is just a number on a page that you are called to steward for the glory of God. Because we're all faced with the temptation to let money become more to us than it really is. We are in this together. And that's why we have to encourage and fight and hold each other accountable to be able to serve money as it's intended to be served. That is, to be able to enjoy it and give it away, but not to be mastered by it. The way you invest your money and the way you give your time oftentimes is a plumb line to the idols of your heart. Got it? Third, interruptions. The best laid plans of mice and men. Some of us have great plans that we've thought about what the next five, six, ten years of our life might look like and might dream. Lauren and I, at every five-year interval of our marriage, we sit down and we write down, what do you think we're going to be in the next five years? But you know what the real test of our marriage is? What happens when that plan does not work? Some of you are not where you thought you would be three years ago. Some of you not three months ago. And I commend to you the book of Job because in the very beginning of the book of Job, Job's wife comes to him and says, Are you still a righteous man before God? Curse God and die. And Job says to his wife, Woman, shall we not receive good from the Lord and also evil? And then the author of the book of Job, utterly shocked that how he could say this amidst losing his health, his wealth, and his family, the author of Job says, And with his lips he did not sin. What do you do when your life is interrupted? Interruptions for us are kind of like dropping a bath toy in a bubble bath. Just for a moment of time, the bubbles clear away and you can see the bottom. Some of you are interrupted right now in the plans you have for your life. That is not an accident. The Lord has, if you will, dropped it into your life to clear away the draw so that you can see what the bottom of the tank looks like. And he does that because he's gracious to you. And he loves you. Your imagination, your investments, interruptions, and fourth, your infernos. Your infernos. Now there's a kind of righteous anger. Jesus in the temple cleared it because they were using it as a marketplace. Righteous anger is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that self-defensive, explosive did not see coming on the kind of anger. You know what I'm talking about. If most of us have had this experience in the kitchen, either with our children or with our spouse. And out of nowhere, boom, we just go off. Something clicks. And anger is kind of like a roadside bomb when you're in Iraq. You really can't see him beforehand. You just see the shrapnel behind you and you feel it. And you need friends to help you have an eye out for your anger issues. And if some of you don't explode, like you don't feel like you can relate to infernos, you know, I, I'm just not that kind of person. I don't really explode. 
Sometimes what you do is actually worse because internally you just seethe. And have you ever seen a pot that boils and you leave the lid on? Man, pressure builds up. And some of you are great at just bottling up that pressure. That's anger. It doesn't come out in explosions. It comes out in implosions inside. And it does just as much damage. What do you get angry about? What makes your blood boil? What has to be right? Where do you have to be right? What has to be organized in your life in order for you to feel like you're having the kind of life well-led? That is oftentimes a plumb line to the idols of your heart. And God says to you, listen, just like Regina, listen, we've all got trash above the surface. Every single one of us brings garbage in. We've all got junk in the trunk, every one of us in this room. The issue is not the surface area stuff. That we can help clean up, right? It is what's beneath the surface. When you deal with that, then you begin to find that your house gets cleaner and cleaner. Now, at the root of all of our, all of our idolatries, I should say at the root of all of our sin is an idolatry. The only reason you ever sin is because of an idol beneath that sin. In fact, the reason why you do anything, you ever commit any sin, is because of an existing idol that's there below the presence. How well do you know yourself? How honest are you with yourself? Imagination, investments, what was the third one? Interruptions. And the fourth, what was the fourth? Infernos. What do you do about them? What do you do about them? This is where Martin Luther and a man named Thomas Chalmers are extremely helpful to us. Martin Luther said that the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, I'll explain that in a minute, are the same thing. Because the Ten Commandments held up for us all drive us to recognize that as much as we want to try to obey those Ten Commandments, just like the rich young ruler that Kay read about moments earlier in our service, as much as we want to obey those Ten Commandments, we can't. That's why Jesus says to this man, notice Mark says, and Jesus said, in love, having loved him, he says, now go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Why? Because he knew that even though this man had kept up this beautiful veneer, there were, as it were, carpenter ants and rats and cockroaches eating away his baseboards. He had a love of money. And the only way he began to actually serve the Lord is if he dealt with the root idol of his heart. And Martin Luther says that it is the idea that you are accepted and loved, not by your own performance or your own merit, but by the performance of another that actually satisfies the deepest longing of your heart. Isaiah makes it very clear in Isaiah 40 through 44. I, I commend you to go and read that this week. Read Isaiah 40 to 44 and just listen to the polemic, this like Magna Carta against idolatry. What does Isaiah say? He says, idols are empty, they are nothing, they are powerless, and yet they share you with every idol that's available. They're not exclusive. They will share you. They will pass you around. 
They will make you into a common slave. They are the work of our hands, Isaiah 2. An idol is something we make in our image, Isaiah 44, 10 to 13. An idol has no ability or power on its own, Isaiah 41, 6 to 7. An idol will eventually rot, Isaiah 40, 20. It cannot tell the future, and it cannot control it, Isaiah 40, 22 through 24. And yet, this idea of justification by faith is the idea that by faith and what Jesus Christ has done for you, by what he has done for you, how he has served you, how he has come to live the life you could not live and die the death that you deserve to die, by taking faith in what he did for you, you take all of your good works, as good as they may appear to be, and you recognize that against the backdrop of a holy God, they are nothing but filthy rags. And whereas you would be fearful of presenting your good works, so you think these are good works, to the holy God, you know what the Father does with you? He sees his son when he sees you and he wraps you in his arms and he sings over you that you are accepted. That you are assured of his love. You are given the exact same things you're going after by worshiping the idols of your heart. Wouldn't you want that? Like, wouldn't you want acceptance and the satisfaction of your deepest longings at the deepest level? Wouldn't you want that? It's only in the gospel, it's only in Christianity that you have that. And it's only by faith alone. All of the world religions will promise you that you can have the deepest desires of your heart met as soon as you perform. As soon as you do what you need to do in order to get God to love you. But the gospel is just the reverse. Christianity is totally the opposite. It's that God loves you. He's called you to believe by faith in Him. And he wraps you in his arms and he says to you, you're my child and I accept you. And I will help you get rid of the idols of your heart. But it will not be easy. And the way to get rid of the idols of your heart, another man named Thomas Chalmers says, is by displacing an old idol with something new. He calls it a new affection. Let me just read you some of what Chalmers says. There is not one transformation in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having one object or another, this is unconquerable. The heart may be dispossessed of one object or of many, but it cannot be desolated of all. The heart must have something to cling to, and never by its own voluntary consent will it so denude itself of its attachments that there shall not be one object that remains with which it cannot draw and solicit you. You hear what he's saying? That the way to displace the idols of your heart is not just by turning and running from that idol. It is always turning and looking to something more beautiful. And what is more beautiful for us as children of God? It is that Jesus loves you. That he's there for you. Chalmers says, this is one of the secrets of the Christian life. That the more a man views God as a pensioner, that is, someone who you must serve in order to get your pension, right? To get payback. 
the greater the payment of service that is rendered. The creature striving to be square and even with his creator is in fact pursuing all the while his own selfishness instead of God's glory. It is only when, as in the gospel, acceptance is bestowed to us as a present, as a free gift, without money, without price, that the security which man feels in God is placed beyond the reach of disturbance. In other words, it is only in the beauty of what Jesus has done for you, friends, that you're able to have everything you desire, everything that you've always longed for. Who in this room wouldn't want that? And yet our imaginations and our investments and our interruptions and our infernos, they tend, they tend to be for us tools to recognize the idols that we put between God that block us out from Him. Now, one of the ways as a, as, um, as a body together that we commit to do this is through common practices. Common practices. T.J. was telling me this week about a documentary that he and Anna had watched called The Dark Matter of Love. And Lauren and I went and watched it the other night, too. It's a story of an American family who takes in some Russian orphans. And it's really the story of a, of a little girl who's Russian named Masha. And the story is a story between this American family and the clinical psychologists who have studied how children who are abandoned at infancy who do not have a mother or a father, are not able to form the biochemical pathways to know how to receive love. And so they grow up without the same biochemical pathways that the children in this room have, that you and I probably have. That is, the way to receive love, the way to show emotion, the way to be expressive, the way to be in a family. Like, their hardwiring is totally different. And the story goes that these psychologists who met with this, this family, the Diaz family, over many, many months, coached them on how to reform the practices of their life. And they said, listen, the common rules that you live by do not work with Masha. And they also adopted two little boys who were twins. You must reform the way you parent. You must help them think in new categories because you are reforming in their minds the ability to learn how to love. It was a beautiful picture, this documentary, of what Christian worship is about. Because when you come to worship week after week, you're not checking some box to get Jesus to love you more. Jesus is calling you to come and to allow the synapses and the biochemical pathways of your heart to be reformed after love himself. So that you're able to truly love as you were created and designed to love. Because sin has so distorted your ability to know what is love and what is not. That you need the practice of worship. You need the common weekly practice of hearing the Lord's word preached to you. Of coming to sing of his praises. Some of those songs we sing as total hypocrites. I shall not want. We want everything. But the more that you sing those and the more that you make that song your prayer, the more and more your heart's synapses are connected. And you're able to see through clear eyes that Jesus is the most beautiful thing in the world and that he loves you. And then you come and you take the Lord's Supper. It's a means of grace for you. It's another practice to help reshape, remold your imagination. And in so doing, you find that the way you spend your time and your money is different. 
you find that the interruptions of your life don't become so catastrophic. And you find that your anger becomes a self-righteous, self-defensive anger and it begins to turn toward an anger for righteous things. And you begin to hate sin and begin to be angry about it. But that comes through common practices because we share a common life together because we all share a common story of being broken people who are redeemed by a Savior. And no matter how good your track record is, every one of us come before a loving Savior and we hold out our hands and Jesus says, I love you. I care for you. I'm not angry, despite what you think. I'm not angry at you. I love you. And our common story leads us to a common hope, which all of us share. That is the call of the church. And if you're going to understand the idols of your heart, you've got, I pray and I beg of you that you will join me in 2015 by being vulnerable. Getting into a community group that talks about the idols of your heart. That's not afraid. That's not fearful of what other people are going to think of you. Christians are radically insecure people, maybe more so than non-Christians. Because week after week, they go to church and they just get beat up, beat up, beat up by the commands that they should do. And they just can't live up to those. But God has called you as believers to rest in the gospel. And not to miss the gospel for all of the things he asks of us. That he only asks those things of us because we are first rooted in him and justified in him. And he accepts us and he loves us and he is here for us. If you're vulnerable enough to admit your brokenness. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a heavy commandment, isn't it? Your imaginations... Your investments, the interruptions, your infernos, they reveal the idols of your heart. And it's realizing that it's because of Jesus Christ and how he performed for you everything that you're striving to perform in which you're complete, in which you're satisfied, in which you're whole. Friends, run to him this morning. Run to him in joy. Bring to him the idols of your heart so far as you know what they are. And cling to your Savior who loves you. And trade out an old affection for a far more beautiful and a better one. Jesus Christ himself. Who beckons you to come with his love. Because he's in the house cleaning business. By helping come to live with you. To dwell with you. To take upon your sin. It becomes his own. So that you might be able to know yourself as you really are. And not as you pretend yourself to be. And the gospel gives you freedom to do that. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to be good students of our hearts. That you'll help us, help our children to be good students of their hearts. To know that beneath every behavior that is misaligned with your purpose for our life is a deeper idol. Lord, help our families to be good students of the heart. And not to grow cynical by just seeing all the subtle network of idolatries, but to run to Jesus. Help us not merely to be masters of diagnosis, but help us to be masters of repentance. 
making repentance our friend, running to him week after week. Jesus, you love us. You are with us. You are not angry with us. And you tell us that we can come to you, all who are heavy laden. Help us to put our trust in you. Mercifully accept our prayers because through the weakness of our life, we can do no good thing without you. Grant us the help by your grace that in keeping your commandments, we can honor and glorify you and extend your beauty to our neighbors, both through our words and our deeds. Through Jesus Christ, amen.